Absolutely beautiful. Uh, this uh, morning, we're going to take communion at the end of the service. Obviously, you can see the tables all around the room, and our prayer is when you walk out of here this morning after communing with the Word of God and praising God that you'll have that peace in your heart, and you can truly say it's well with my soul as you go live your life this week. Uh, th- this morning, uh, let's pick up a little bit where we left off last week. Last week, we were talking about Judas, and the religious leaders were constantly trying to kill Jesus Christ. That's what we see in the New Testament. These uh, scribes and Pharisees, these chief priests and rulers, it's hard to make an American equivalent, but uh, they called them the Sanhedrin. It's a bit like uh, the Supreme Court and the Senate put together. They were both lawmakers and judge and jury. And it was a group of of men that that ruled Israel and uh, kind kind of a a religious senate, if you would, mixed with the Supreme Court. That's what the Sanhedrin is. And they're constantly trying to arrest Jesus. They ultimately, they're very clear on their motives. They want to put him to death. Better that this man should die than, than all of us should get in trouble with the Roman government and all these kind of things. And every time they tried to arrest Jesus, he had slipped out of their hands. Now last week as we studied Judas, you know they ultimately got a spy, got a traitor, a betrayer on the inside of Jesus' group. In the disciples, there was one that they, they turned. And he was not a believer. We saw that last week. Jesus even said, I've chosen you 12, and one of you is a devil. Let me go back to that now, because early in the ministry of Jesus, they're trying to arrest Jesus. John chapter 7 records one of the incidents. Uh, the religious leaders had their own little private army, little uh, uh, officers of the chief priests. There's some military there, religious police that guarded the, the, the Temple Mount area. They dispatched those soldiers to arrest Jesus on one occasion. Hours went by, time went by. Finally, the soldiers arrived back at the Temple Mount, and they were empty-handed. The ones who had sent them began to scold them publicly and said to those officers, What is wrong with you knuckleheads? Why have you not brought Jesus Christ? And their answer in John seven forty six is this, No one ever spoke like this man. Now the religious leaders are incredulous. They're like, We sent you to arrest this man, not to attend his worship service. Why were you listening to the message? And they said, well, as we got there, we, I can just hear the conversation now. We started hearing what he was saying. You know what? It made a lot of sense. We've been to your religious services, and they're just a bunch of rituals that are boring. But we heard this guy talking, and it just made sense what he was saying. And we were mesmerized. No one ever spoke words. No one ever spoke in such a a way, a kind and gentle and loving way to us. No one spoke with such authority about the subject as this man did. The people who sent these soldiers, well, they're going bananas now. They're, they're incredulous. They said, have you also been deceived? Did you soldiers respond to the invitation? When you were out there, did, are you believers now in Jesus? He goes a little bit further. Verse 48, have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him. So this guy who's leading the, the berating of the soldiers now turns to the other Pharisees and says, have any of you guys believed on Jesus Christ? I mean, we all know we're actively conspiring to get a spy inside Jesus' camp. Has Jesus been successful in turning us and getting spies inside of our camp? Do any of you believe on Jesus? That's probably about how quiet it was in the room. 
And I know two men in particular, which we'll talk about next week, Nicodemus and Joseph. Nick and Joe are over there looking at each other. Don't say a word. Don't say a word. Keep your face impassive. No, not us. But something's happening in the hearts of some of these men. Now, they knew if they said yes, it would be career suicide. It would be being an outcast. It would be shunning. It would be losing everything. Now, the story this morning is very similar. And what I want to challenge you with today is each of us are going to have a similar experience. Whether it's your peers at school that put you on the spot, and that is very likely to happen. Or whether it's a professor at the university, that's very likely to happen. Or whether it's one of your colleagues at work, uh, somewhere along the way, someone's going to ask you, you don't believe too, do you? You don't really, it's Easter, you don't really believe that a man was killed and rose from the grave, do you? Somewhere along the way, every one of us are going to be put on the spot and we're going to have to make a public stand about what we believe about Jesus Christ. And this morning's story challenges us like perhaps no other passage in the Bible to confront our fear of standing up for Jesus Christ publicly. I don't think there's any more powerful story in the Bible than the one we're going to study today that will help you and challenge you to confront your fear about saying, yeah, I'm with Jesus. Just get it out there and not be ashamed of it and not be bashful of it. You know the story, I need to back up and give you the backstory. When I give you the backstory, the story will make perfect sense. Many centuries ago, a Roman dignitary fathered a son out of wedlock. A Roman dignitary fathered an illegitimate son. Because the son was born out of wedlock, he would never be recognized as an official son, an heir to this VIP. Being illegitimate, you would always be called the bastard son of, and everybody would know that, and that would cause you to live your life with quite a chip on your shoulder. He would never be recognized by the father. Therefore, he would never have the, the assets, the title, the rank, uh, the, the, the doors that would open by having a father who was a, a high muckety-muck. He would never have any of that privilege. Anything that he earned in life, he'd, uh, he would have to earn it on his own. I mean, he would have to achieve it. No one was going to give him anything because of who his daddy was. And because he had such a chip on his shoulders, uh, he, he, he was mean. Uh, he was tough. No, they, they, they had trouble uh, disciplining him and trouble guiding him. So eventually they shipped the little boy off to a military boarding school, a Roman military school. And when young Pilate got to military school, he found an environment in which he would thrive. He took to it like... like a fish to water. I mean, the boundaries, the, the rules, the, 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 the power structure, uh, uh, the violence, uh, the, the physical aspects of it, the mental aspects of it. He, was, he, he just was a rising superstar in the military academy. And he was earning himself a title. He was earning himself fame. Uh, nobody would give it to him. And, and he rose through the ranks so quickly 
that he graduated from the military academy, went into the Roman army, and began to perform so well in the Roman army that he made the title of tribune. Tribune is a big deal. Tribune is a, is a position that 20-something men, 20-something-year-old men, would get the title of tribune in the Roman army who had uh, ambitions and goals to be senators. From tribune, you got yourself in the inner circle, and from there you went to be a senator, the ruling class of the world in this day of the Roman Empire. And so he's now made the rank of tribune, and everybody knows that this young man, uh, Pilate, is on his way to the top. One day he'll probably be a senator ruling Rome. It was about that time the Senate began to really notice young Pilate. And, uh, you know, there are no soldiers allowed in Rome. Let me see if I... You guys all know the, the, the statement, we've crossed the Rubicon. You've heard that before? The Rubicon, it means there's no turning back now. That's what it means if you ever want to throw that in one of your papers at school. Young people, just throw that. No, we've crossed the Rubicon. It means there's no going back. And the Rubicon was a river in northern Italy, and there were no Roman soldiers allowed to cross the Rubicon. Let me explain why. They did not allow armed soldiers inside or near Rome because they were afraid if you had... If those soldiers were loyal to you as a general, you could easily just go into Rome and overtake the government and rule the world. Does that make sense? No soldiers allowed with so many miles of Rome. The only only armed people in Rome were the Praetorian Guard, which you would think of as the Capitol Police or the Secret Service. There are armed men around the president this morning, but they're very, very trusted individuals, very, very elite group. There are people with guns in the Capitol, but they're the Capitol Police, very known, very trusted, long-serving people. They're the only ones trusted in that inner power circle with weapons. Same in the Roman Empire. And one day, Julius Caesar and his legions came to the river, and of course, he was going to go be, he was going to go take over Rome. That was his ambitions to, to eventually crush Pompey the Great, Pompey Magnus and all those guys. And so he said, we're going for Rome, boys. Are you with me? And, and they said, if you cross the Rubicon, that's that. I mean, there's a law that says we can't cross it. And Julius Caesar said, well, we have crossed the Rubicon now. There's no going back. We either all die or we go take over the world, one of the two. And they went and took over the world is what they did. Now, that Praetorian Guard that military elite inside the city of Rome that protected the Senate. The man who is their boss is a guy named Sejanus. Sejanus and Tiberius Caesar and some of the elites make the, the, the joint chiefs of staff, if you would, uh, the, the, the military council. And one day the Roman Empire, way out on the borderland near the Black Sea, near Romania, had an uprising, and, and, and Rome said, we've got to go send some troops out there and, and just quash that a rebellion against the Roman government that's going on. And Sejanus says, I've got my eyes on one of the young tribunes who's a real hot shot. And man, he's ruthless. And they, uh, Sejanus said, let's send uh, Pontius Pilate over there with the 12th Roman legion, and he'll take care of that for us. They did. They dispatched Pontius Pilate, the 12th Roman legion, and they crushed the uprising. I mean, ruthlessly shed blood, crushed that rebellion, and said, you guys will tow the Roman line or else. And, and, and when Pontius Pilate came back to Rome, he wrote in, in a, with accolades, you know what I'm saying, with quite a feather in his cap, he had done something wonderful for the empire that everyone knew about. The whole Senate knew about it. So Sejanus, the head of the Praetorian Guard, said to the power brokers, I want to make Pontius Pilate 
one of the Praetorian Guard. Man, if you can trust anybody, it's this guy. He just put down a rebellion for you. He's the top of the class from the military academy. He's already reached the rank of tribune. And so they moved Pilate inside Rome as a part of the Praetorian Guard. Now, just to say it to you in, in ways that make sense, he's in the boys' club now. Now inside of Rome, the senators see his face every day. Does that make sense? When the TV cameras are rolling, man, there's Pilate somewhere in the background where these senators are giving their interviews. He's among the elites who are ruling the Roman Empire now. He's in the very seat of power. Now, that was always his aspiration. Now, here's what no one knew. No one knew at the time that Sejanus, the head of the Capitol Police, the head of the Praetorian Guard, secretly wanted to overthrow Tiberius Caesar. No one knew that the guy who was leading the secret service was actually bent. Does that make sense? And so he was slowly, over a period of years, putting people who were loyal to him in key leadership places. So the day he decided to stab Caesar, all the people in power would already be his guys. That was his plan. Nobody knew about it at this stage. And so things went along nicely for a while, and, 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 and the Middle East was boiling up. There's this place in the Middle East that nobody's ever been able to rule. It was true in the first century, and it's still true in the world we live in today. Every day you turn on your television, there they are. Rockets, riots, throcks, murder. It's mayhem in the Middle East. Seems to be the story for thousands of years. And so the Senate and Sejanus, are, are, they're having these conversations. And Sejanus says to Tiberius Caesar, listen, why don't we send hotshot, Pilate, why don't you make him governor of Judea and send him out to rule those people that nobody else can rule? Why, he crushed the other rebellion over near the Black Sea. He's like the young superstar here politically and militarily. Send Pilate to be the governor. Now, what Sejanus is thinking, I'll have another one of my guys ruling in a very high political position. So Tiberius Caesar said, good suggestion. And they dispatched Pontius Pilate as the governor of Judea. And so Pilate got his wife, got the soldiers, got in the ships, and they sailed from Rome over to Israel. The city where Rome governed the Middle East from was Caesarea, named after Caesar, on the coast of Israel. You guys who are going to, to Israel in a few weeks will take your ride up to Caesarea on the first stop. And you can see everything uh, that we're talking about. And so Pilate met with his military at Caesarea, the soldiers that are garrisoned in the Middle East. And he said, boys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to show these people that Rome is in control. And we're not going to put up with a bunch of nonsense from these, these barbarians. So I brought from Rome all of these busts, these statues of Caesar. I brought these big fancy gold shields and these Roman flags and Roman eagles and Roman banners and all of this pageantry and all of this, you know, like a military Roman parade stuff. And here's what I want you guys to do. I want you guys tonight when the sun goes down to march up to Jerusalem under cover of darkness. And when you get to Jerusalem and everybody's asleep, I want you all to slip into the city and on the main street and on Broad and Wall and on all those fancy corners in Jerusalem, I want you to plant Roman flags with banners and Roman eagles and big gold shields commemorating the battles that we've won. And I want you to take those statues of, of Tiberius Caesar and put them all around Temple Mount, the Antonio Fortress and all through the major uh, intersections of the city. And they did. 
And when the sun came up the next morning in Jerusalem and everyone began to have their coffee and they walked outside, it looked like a Roman military parade had exploded in downtown Jerusalem. There's, there's red crimson banners and golden eagles and statues and pictures of Julius Caesar. And the Jews went bananas. They went absolutely crazy. Because one of the big parts of Judaism is thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. And they considered a bust of a man in Jerusalem as idolatry in the holy city. Does that make sense? So the Jews rioted out into the streets Hundreds, then thousands, then more thousands of them. And they said, we will not have it. But there's Roman soldiers standing there armed to the teeth saying, you will have it. And so the Jews decided what they would do is all of those Jewish men would converge on Caesarea where Pilate was living in his palace. So they all marched down to Caesarea on the coast. And when Pilate woke up the next morning and opened his curtains to have his coffee, there's thousands of men rioting in his courtyard. Bring down the statues. We're not idolaters, you pagan jerk. Get those banners out of our holy city. I mean, with torches and banners and and megaphones, they're in his front yard. Hundreds turned into thousands. Now, we know that days went by. Day two, he walked out thinking they would go away if he ignored them, and there were more. Day three, there were more. Ultimately, about 6,000 men camped on his front yard and uh, they said it's going gonna, it's gonna to rain tomorrow like we had yesterday. It's going to be a monsoon. It's going to be a frog floater. And he said, great, they'll go home. He walked out the next morning and there were more of them than the day before. And man, it got bad. And Pilate said, okay, eventually I've got to do something. And they just, uh, the, the, the historian Josephus says they started singing the Psalms. And they started singing through the Old Testament songbook. And you could hear, you imagine what 6,000 men singing the book of Psalms would sound like in your front yard. I mean, it's ringing through the house. You're not getting any sleep. I mean, he's like, all right, I got to do something. So he snuck his soldiers around that whole mob, lined them up behind columns where they couldn't see them coming. And when he told them to advance, the history books say that those soldiers stepped out from behind the columns, armed to the teeth. And you could hear the ringing of their swords as they unsheathed them. And he said to those people, you'll go home and disband this ride at once or I will cut your heads off where you stand. Those guys looked at each other and Josephus recorded that they began to unbutton their tunics and roll down their collars. Checkmate, Mr. Pilot. Go ahead and cut. If you want to cut our heads off, then go ahead and cut. Let's see if you'll really... Now that takes some grit let's they were fierce but Pilate was fierce too and he was sharp he was a political student and Pilate thought about it for a few minutes and he came back out and addressed the mob and he said okay all of that was just a test it was a week-long test to see if you were really sincere about your religious beliefs and now that I see that you're really sincere about your religious beliefs here's what I'm going to do I'm going to remove the statues of Caesar from Jerusalem and I'm going to acquiesce in this I'm going to I'm going to yield in this and I'll make this compromise to you but I want you to know sure as you see me standing here I'll be uncompromising going forward and I'm not afraid to shed your blood well he really was a little nervous secretly because can you imagine on your first week on the job 
having to write your, and your weekly report back to your boss. Dear Tiberius Caesar, I've been here six days. I just slaughtered 6,000 men in my front yard. It's a bloody mess. The lawn is soaked. Uh, we're trying to get the bodies gone right now. Uh, uh, lovingly, uh, your governor, Pontius Pilate. That's not a report you want to send. <clears throat> you were sent there to keep the peace. You're sent there to keep the money flowing to Rome. If Rome doesn't know anything about you, that's what makes them happy. We don't want to know anything about it. Just keep the money coming. Peace, harmony, everybody toe the line. So Pilate told them, I'll make this concession, but I'll not make many more. Now, I'm going to have to summarize some of, some of the history for you. Uh, uh, he, he, he was astute at chasing criminals, and his soldiers were. They chased them all over Israel. And uh, there was one occasion where he chased some criminals up to Galilee. The Galilean criminals ran down south to Judea. His army chased them south to Judea. They ran into the temple. His soldiers came up to the temple door. And the sign posted at the temple door said, Gentiles are not allowed. And they didn't go in. As a matter of fact, it says upon penalty of your life, if you're a Gentile, walk through that door. The, the Jew, religious Jews will kill you because you're not allowed to go into this particular place they could go into the antonio fortress next door and go up to the tower and they said Pilate, we can see the criminals they're right there they're standing at the altar pretending to worship with all of these people in their church over there pontius Pilate said i'm sick to death of these people here's his command go kill them there that's what he told his soldiers terse command go kill them right there and the roman soldiers kicked in the doors to the temple Can you imagine the outrage this caused? And those Roman soldiers, those unclean pagan Gentiles ran right into the place of worship for the Jews. And they grabbed those criminals and the swords came out and they began to hack them into pieces. Blood. 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 All of the worshipers are covered in blood droplets. It's recorded in history. The blood of the criminals splashed upon the lamb, laying upon the altar they were sacred. Can you imagine the outrage of these Jewish men worshiping up there? The, blood, the courtyard is a bloodbath. Now, it's such a, such a big deal. It caused a riot of epic proportion in Jerusalem. Such a big deal that Jesus... In the Bible, in Luke chapter 13, make note of it, Luke chapter 13, the first two verses, Jesus says, you'll remember what Pilate did, how he spilled the blood on the altar. With the, he t- Jesus tells the story uh, in Luke chapter number 13. Pilate did not understand their Old Testament uh, worship, their Old Testament laws. So Pilate said, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to let you guys have court. You keep your Sanhedrin, keep your Supreme Court. Keep your senate, whatever you want to call it. Keep your little court. But I want you to know that Rome is in control here, not you. And I'll let you rule your crazy rebellious people. And you keep your people in line. But, if, but to show you who's boss, if you ever want to give anybody the death penalty, you have to come to me and ask. Because ultimately, I am Rome and I am in c- control. They called the power of life and death, the death penalty, jus gladiae. Jus gladiae, the power of the sword. And he said, you can have your court, but if you want to execute somebody, the answer is no. You've got to come beg me. You've got to come ask me, because only I can do that. Now, it seemed like everything Pilate did caused one uproar after another. To the point the Senate got tired of watching CNN and hearing the word riot. They sent a letter 
to Caesarea, and they recalled Pontius Pilate to Rome. They said, you'll come to Rome and stand before Senate and give an account to all these riots. What in the world is going on? Pilate got there and gave the report. And he said, you're right. It's, it's, these people are crazy people. You, can hardly, you can't rule them all. Their laws are not like our laws. They don't worship gods like we worship. They only worship one god. It, such a, it's like being on Mars, Senate. It's not, like, it's not like Germany. It's not like France. It's, not like, it's like being on Mars. These people are nothing like us, and they're crazy, and they're hard to rule. And I, I'm sorry I'm causing one riot after another. The Senate said, okay, here's the deal. We're not going to strip you of your governorship. Go back home. Go back home to Israel. But if we get one more report that has the word riot in it, you're done. Your job is over and maybe your life, okay? Now, to make matters worse, before he left Rome, Sejanus' plot to assassinate Tiberius Caesar was uncovered. And all of the people who Sejanus had put into places of power were immediately arrested and brought in for questioning on the charge of treason. And they were implicated, they were put to death, they called Pontius Pilate in and said, did you not get your governorship through the, on your resume, we have a letter of uh, recommendation from Sejanus in the file. Are you one of the, they questioned him at length. And he escaped by the skin of his teeth. He said, dude, I've been in Israel. I don't know nothing about this. I'm over there trying to calm down these crazy people and rule these unrulable people. I had no idea what's going on. And he escaped charges of treason. Got on the boat and he went back to Israel to rule for Rome. Things went along pretty good for the next few months. Things are calm. He's glad. Until one morning, very, very early in the morning, sun's just coming up now, some soldiers slip into Pilate's bedroom. Sir, you need to wake up. Sir, Mr. Governor, we need you you to get up, sir. What, what, What is it? What's going on? There's a mob gathering downstairs in your front yard. He's in Jerusalem now for this. There's a mob gathering downstairs in your front yard in Jerusalem. You need to get dressed, sir, and come down to the judgment seat. Something's going on. The Jews have been up all night. The Sanhedrin court has been assembled all night. They arrested a man last night in the Garden of Gethsemane. They pronounced the death penalty upon him. And they're all standing in your front yard ready for you to crucify him. Pilate dressed, quickly made his way downstairs, outside to see what was going on in his courtyard. I'm reading from Matthew 27. And when morning came, all of the chief priests and the elders took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him. And they led him away over to Pilate, to the governor. They led him away to the governor because they want to kill him, and only Pilate can say yes to that request. Now, I want you to see them binding the hands of Jesus Christ, whether in chains or whether in ropes. I want you to see Jesus bound up like a common criminal now. I want you to see them binding the hands of a man who touched a little girl who was dead, lying on her bed in her little pink-colored bedroom with her Barbie dolls all around She died earlier that day, and I want you to see the hands of Jesus reach down and take that girl's hand and say, 
honey, it's time to wake up. And I want you to see a little girl who was dead sit up in the bed and say, I'm hungry. Jesus said, get her something to eat. And he gave that girl back to her parents alive. I want you to see them binding the hands of Jesus. Hands that made a little clay one day and put some mud in a blind man's eyes and said, go and wash your eyes and you will receive your sight. I want you to see them binding the hands that were laid upon a man's ears and he couldn't hear and all of a sudden the deaf man receives his hearing. Just see Jesus, the Son of God, bound like a common criminal and dragged across town and thrown down in Pilate's courtyard. Now Pilate's about to face in his life For the first time, the tension that you and I live with as followers of Christ. Pilate's about to face some of the same tension that we face in our careers because my faith affects my career. Now, Pilate's sharp. He's not a novice. He had been involved in some tricky situations before. So Pilate does what the governor does. He began to question the accused. He is judge and jury, essentially. And so he said, I want to question Jesus for a minute. I'm reading from John 19, verse 4. Pilate went out and said to the crowd, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And he brought Jesus out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When you guys get to Israel in a few weeks, you can stand in the street where the old archways are. They call it the Eke Homo Arch, the Behold the Man Arch, where Pilate brought Jesus out and said, Here, in the street, there's the one you've accused. Let's take a good look now and examine him. And when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find... No guilt in him. The Pharisees said, we've already made a judgment. We've been up all night. We've already decided. Actually, they decided years ago, to be honest with you. They'd already been trying to put Jesus to death. They just now got the opportunity. But Mr. Pilate, we can't put him to death. Nanny, nanny, boo-boo. You said that you were ultimately in charge. And if we wanted the death penalty, we had to come to you Because you're the high muckety-muck of Rome in the Middle East. So here we are. Checkmate. It's back on you again. You have to crucify him. Pilate said, Jesus, come here. I want to talk to you for a minute. And the Bible tells us that Jesus and Pilate had conversation here. Pilate's asking him questions. And when Pilate questioned Jesus, Pilate came to a conclusion. His conclusion was not guilty. That is his conclusion. That's repeated all through the New Testament. Not guilty. And I want you to know that anyone who's taken the time to commune with the Word of God and commune with the Holy Spirit of God, anyone who's taken time to actually get to know Jesus Christ and check out who Jesus is and have some fellowship with Jesus Christ, everyone has come to the same conclusion. Not guilty. I find no guilt in him. Pilate said, I... I, My judgment's not guilty, but the mob went crazy. The mob said, you've got to crucify him. He said, no, my judgment is not guilty. They said, we're going to riot and burn this city down. Pilate said, oh, no. I cannot afford an uprising. The Senate just told me one more mark on my 
work record, and I'm done politically. I'm done maybe physically. I'm done. I'm going to be recalled, lose my governorship, and maybe my life. His job is on the line. And Pilate knew he was being pressured now to make a choice. Now, I just want to transfer that to you because each of us will be required to make a personal decision about Jesus Christ. And I want you to know before we even get there, before it ever happens in your life, eventually your decision about Jesus is going to touch your career somewhere along the way. Do you hear what I'm saying? Somewhere along the way, your faith, your decision about Jesus Christ is going to come out in your career. Whether it's at the water cooler or in the boardroom or on the company softball field or on a business trip, eventually someone's going to say, you don't believe that, do you? And there you're going to be. Eventually, every one of us have to make a decision about Jesus. It will touch your career. But it gets even closer to home than that. My decision's going to impact my family. Now Pilate's caught up in this drama, and to make matters more interesting now, his wife makes an appearance at work. This is highly unusual. His wife shows up in the courtroom now. She slips into the courtroom and and gets a message to Pilate that says, this is going to touch our family. Be careful, honey, what you're about to do. This is going to impact me and the kids and you and our relationship. This is going to touch our family life. Matthew 27, verse 19, while he was sitting on the judgment seat. I mean, court is in session. Do you understand the drama of this? He's sitting on the judgment seat. It's all happening live. His wife comes in and says, honey, I need to talk to you. Can you imagine this? The Supreme Court of the United States is in session. Arguments are being made. And one of the spouses comes into the courtroom and says, Honey, can you all stop a second? I need to talk to you. Can you imagine the drama of this? Especially in the first century. Can you imagine the drama of this? I'm sure people were like, You can't be in here. They don't allow you in here. You can't talk to him while he's on the throne making judgments. Uh, Are you crazy? She, She was adamant. I will see, I will get a message to my husband. While he was on the judgment seat, the wife sent word and said, Have nothing to do with this righteous man. I've been up all night, tossing and turning. I don't know if she and Pilate didn't sleep in the same bedroom, but she said, I've been having nightmares, ominous dreams all night. I had visions of a man. I had visions of our family being torn apart. I had visions of death. I had visions. Have you ever just felt oppressed? You ever felt like Satan walked into the room or demonic oppression was there and you just felt, man, something? Here's modern language. You ever, your, your spouse ever say this to you? Something doesn't feel right about this. Something doesn't feel right about this. There's something going on here that we don't fully understand, honey, Do not, here's Texan speak, don't touch this with a 10-foot pole. Something weird is going on here that I don't understand, have nothing to do. Now, these are famous, back up, back up two clicks, guys. This is a famous painting right here, Jesus before Pilate. You see the mob in the background, Pilate saying, here's the, behold the man. Look right over here. 
This famous painting, this is Pontius Pilate's wife slipping into the room while he's up there addressing the people, saying to the servant girl, get a message to my husband. I need to talk to him right now. Ask him to step back from the balcony. I need to have a... You see what's happening? Now the Bible says he was on the judgment seat, sitting on the throne. When when she walked into the room, her, her advice to her husband was be agnostic. I don't know what to... Be neutral. Uh, You know, the way they do it in Congress is vote present, not I or nay when they come to you, you know. Present, (laughs) it means I have no idea. I don't want to touch this with a 10-foot pole. I'm going to be neutral on the matter. If I vote this way, they'll use it against me in the political campaign. If I vote this way, it's the wrong decision. Present, (laughs) she said, honey, vote present on this one. Do not get caught up in this. Be neutral. But I want you to know on this matter of Jesus Christ, there can be no neutrality. You're either going to have to accept him or reject him. It's either yes or no. He either is who he claimed to be, the righteous son of God sent to die for our sins, or he's a fraud. You have to decide. Next week's decision is basically this. He either rose from the dead or he didn't. You have to decide where you stand on this issue. Is he the real thing? Or is he a fraud? Pilate's saying, oh my goodness, I'm caught in the middle of this. And when Pilate heard them accuse Jesus of being the Son of God, well, let me just read you what happened and you judge. John 19, 8, when Pilate heard they called him the Son of God, he was even more afraid. So he entered his headquarters again. Jesus, let's step back from the balcony. Come inside a minute. I want to talk to you in private again. He entered into his headquarters and said to Jesus, where are you from? Pilate's not asking if you're from Galilee. Pilate's not asking, are you from Nazareth? He said, I heard them accuse you of being the son of God. Sir, where are you from? Something doesn't feel right about this. Something weird and heavy and demonic is happening right now. Who are you? Where are you from? The Bible says Jesus gave him no answer. Verse 10, so Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me now? You won't talk to me? By the way, that's a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, as a lamb before her shearers is dumb, so he opens not his mouth to defend himself. Will you not talk to me now? Do you not know that I have the power, I have the authority to release you or to crucify you? I want to make sure you understand you know who you're talking to. I'm the guy with the juice gladiator. I'm the guy with the juice, you'd say in America. I'm the guy with the power. The way this goes is up to my decision. What's Jesus' answer to Pontius Pilate? Sir, you have no authority over me at all unless it were given you from above you know what that's what Romans 8 says all authority is ordained of God whether it's the policeman or the governor or whatever that God ordained government and Jesus says the only reason you hold power is because of God therefore those who have delivered me to you have the greater condemnation you know what Jesus told him you're a governor doing his job I get it. I get it. You're a governor doing what a governor does. 
But you need to know that you're a governor because God ordained government. But the people who delivered me to you, the Sanhedrin, the the Pharisees, they have the greater condemnation. Jesus is saying, we already know who the bad guys are. The villains are downstairs. The religious leaders. We don't know about you, whether you're going to be a villain or not. But you have no power at all unless my Father gave it to you. Now let me tell you what's very clear in the scripture. Pilate wants to let Jesus go free. Very clear. I'm, 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 I, I, I told people in the first service, I'm uh, mesmerized by this guy. He's fascinating. Just fascinating. Pilate wants to let Jesus go. And at this point in the story, if you were there live recording with your camera, at this moment you don't know whether Pilate's going to be a hero or a villain. At this moment, you have no idea. He could be the greatest man in history. He could be the biggest jerk in history. And we just don't know until it plays out over the next few minutes. But Pilate wants to let Jesus go. Pilate's made a right judgment. Not guilty. But now Pilate has to follow through and make the right decision. I think a lot of us make the right judgment, but we don't follow through with the right actions. In our hearts, we know what's right, that's what I'm saying, but we don't always play it out to to the end result that it's right. Sometimes knowing what's right and wrong, we still act the wrong way. Pilate knows what's right, but will he do what is right? John 19, 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release Jesus. But the Jews cried out the more, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. And everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard those words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat in a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It's the sixth hour. It's in the morning. And he said to the Jews, now Pilate's ticked. He's ticked. Okay. So now he brings Jesus out, crown of thorns, purple robe, and a reed. They've dressed him up like a king. Do you understand? He's in a king's costume, beaten to smithereens, standing there bleeding in a king's costume. Now they bring Jesus out, and Pilate, to stick it to the Jews verbally, says, Behold your king. Jerks. They said, Crucify him! Crucify him! Kill him! Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? Seriously? What's wrong with you people? Why would you want me, a Roman, to kill a Jew? Isn't that weird? Especially your king. Pilate's got bravado on the outside, but he's terrified on the inside. Pilate's thinking, my career will not stand a report to Rome that says riots in the street this morning. My goose could be cooked right here. If I stand with the crowd, I'm guilty of putting an innocent man to death. Now, here's what fascinates me about Pilate. He wasn't afraid to kill people. But look at his morality in this moment, how high it is. If I side with the crowd, I put an innocent man to death, and I'm not really wanting to put an innocent man to death. If I stand with Jesus then the crowd's going to burn this city down and I've just lost my job and maybe my life. My last point is this. 
My faith will determine my destiny. Pilate has a decision to make, and it's the same decision that you and I have to make. So Pilate says, okay, let me see if I can do something you Jews will understand. He says to the servants, bring me a basin of water. And they bring a basin of water out there on the porch in front of everybody. And he said, I want you to pour that water over my hands, and I'm going to speak to the crowd. And as they began to pour, see, they were all into these ceremonial washings and and, and rituals. He said, I'm going to pull one of their rituals out of the Old Testament. And so he began to wash his hands in a basin of water there in front of the crowd. Matthew 27, 24, when he saw that he gained nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took the water and washed his hands before the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. I'm washing my hands of this whole matter. If you want to kill him, you kill him. But I'm not going to kill him. I'm washing my hands of this whole matter. Let me ask you to make a judgment this morning. Can you escape the guilt of rejecting God's sons by washing your hands in water? Does that cleanse you of rejecting the Son of God? If a person rejects Jesus as Savior, can that person, despite the words of a country song, go down into the river and be baptized and wash themselves clean from their sins? No. You can't reject God's son and go to the baptistry and be clean. The baptistry will not make you clean from rejecting God's son. You can't reject Jesus as Savior and give money to charity and therefore be pronounced clean. It doesn't work that way. There's nothing about that in all of Scripture. No religion has a ceremony that will cleanse you of the guilt of rejecting God's son. You can't reject Jesus as your Savior, light a candle, take communion, and be cleansed of rejecting God's Son. There's no religious ceremony. No one has one. Not the Baptists, not the Catholics, not the Mormons. Nobody has a ceremony that will cleanse the guilt of rejecting Jesus Christ. The only way to be right with God is to be born again. And the only way to be born again is to believe on Jesus Christ. So Pilate Listen to me, Pilate, there's more at stake than your job right now. Your soul is on the line. I'm afraid you're going to lose your soul, not your marriage, not your job. You're going to lose your eternal soul over the decision you're about to make. John 19 says this, so he delivered him over to be crucified. And they took Jesus, 17, and he went out of Pilate's courtyard bearing his own cross. They've now laid a cross on his shoulder. And he carries it out of town to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. And as they crucified Jesus on that morning, when the sky should have been bright near noon, the Bible says that the sun was darkened and refused to shine. And then in the afternoon, the ground began to shake. And the rocks began to break and the graves began to tear open and the temple mount began to tear open and the veil was rent and the ground is shaking and the sky is black and the Roman soldier who's not afraid of anything lifts his eyes up and says, surely we've crucified the Son of God. Something terribly has gone wrong today. Something demonic, something is really weird about all of this. Something is not right Well, we've come near the end of our story now. Well, at least Pilate lived happily ever after, right? At least Pilate's got his job, becomes senator, becomes a great ruler in Roman history, 
And he and his wife moved back to Rome with an nice villa and a vineyard, make Cabernet and, and live a happy life with their grandkids happily ever after in Tuscany, strolling through the vineyards. No, that's not the way it played out. Let me fast forward six years. Pilate lost his job anyway. Now, now listen to the power of these words. Fast forward six years. He lost his governorship anyway. He lost it anyway. And I'm just thinking about how many Americans are trying to hold on to something that ultimately is nothing. You're not going to have it anyway. And forsaking Jesus Christ over something that doesn't amount to anything because you're going to lose it anyway. Listen to the power of this. Pilate could have been the hero of history. Pilate could have stepped off the throne, went down beside Jesus, said, Dude, unchain this guy. Uh, Release this man. Crowd, do whatever you want to do. Burn your own city to the ground. I could care less. But I stand with Jesus Christ. Not guilty. Take it. Do whatever you want to with it. I make my stand with Jesus Christ. Well, wouldn't that have been beautiful to read on the pages of your history book? Pilate could have been the one famous for saying, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Because in a few minutes, somebody is going to say that. And Jesus is going to save them. And they do go to heaven. But I'm afraid it wasn't Pilate. Listen to the power of this. Pilate in this moment could have went and stood with Jesus Christ and he could have gone down in the history books as the Apostle Pontius Pilate. Wouldn't that have been wild? You say, well, he would have been recalled to Rome. So what? So was Paul. And he could have stood in Rome before the palace of Tiberius Caesar and Pontius Pilate could have said, let me tell you what what went down. I met a man named Jesus Christ. He's the son of God. He told me all things ever I did. He, he, He looked right into my heart and knew all about I was and he forgave me of my sins and he cleansed me and he washed me and he put me into a relationship with God and, and Caesar, I wish you were even, he could have, he could have witnessed to Caesar. He could have witnessed to the entire Roman Senate. He could have been a hero. But who he was got in the way of who he could become. Roman government and religion one morning united together to crucify, villains united, to crucify the Son of God. But before you point the finger at Pontius Pilate this morning, let me say to everyone, we, all of us, crucified Jesus Christ. I can't point the finger at Pilate and say, you're a jerk, you made the wrong decision. What decision would you have made? It's tough to stand there in Pilate's shoes. I want to think that you would have said, I'll stand with Jesus, but that's a tough place to be in. You say, well, you're making him out to be a good guy. No, he's a bad guy. But he could have been a good guy. He could have, with one decision, been one of the best guys history had ever known. But I don't want to be too finger pointy with Pontius Pilate because the Bible says that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was laid upon him. Paul said the sins that you committed, 
the sins that I committed were nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ when they nailed him to that cross. I'll tell you who put Christ on the cross. Our sins did. We are all villains at this point. We all united together in our sins. Now, someone asked me after the first service, they said, what if Pilate had done the right thing? Would Jesus have still died for our sins? Sure, they would have put another governor in, arrested him next week and killed him. But it wouldn't have been Pilate. (laughs) That's what makes a difference, you know what I'm saying? It wouldn't have been him. It would have been somebody else. What I'm saying to you this morning is simply this. I, I want to challenge everyone who's born again this morning. You're going to get eventually, eventually at school, at work, at home, in the neighborhood, somewhere, you're going to get put on the spot. And somebody's going to say, where do you stand? In that moment, you're going to flash back to this story in your Bible, and you're going to say, okay, here's my moment. You don't have to make a big speech. You don't have to make a grand entrance. You just need to say, I stand with Jesus. I stand with him. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. We're going to prepare for communion this morning in this invitation. Before we take communion together, the Bible's very clear that we have to search our hearts and make sure that we're in communion and fellowship with God. And so I just ask you to stand very quietly to your feet, everyone together. It's easier to move around in the room. And if you need to slip out right now and find your place at an altar for a few minutes and just talk to the the one who saved you and say, God, listen, if there's anything in my life that's displeasing to you, Lord, this is my moment to get it right and just have sweet fellowship and communion with you today. If you're here in this congregation this morning hearing the message of Pontius Pilate who would not stand with Jesus, let me ask you, have you been born again? And if you have, have you followed through in believer's baptism? That is one way of making a public stand for Jesus Christ. If you've never been baptized, at least schedule it. At least decide that you're going to do it. And tell someone about your decision this morning. Slip out of your seat and just come down here and say to Miss Susan, I need to schedule my baptism. I need to schedule it. I've never done that. I want to do it. It's important to me. It's important to God. I'm not ashamed. If you're not a member of this church, listen, what's holding you back? Come be a part of the team officially. Get a jersey. Get on the team roster. And let's go together for Jesus Christ. It's a lot easier to make a stand with someone else than it is to make a stand alone. That's why he gave us the fellowship of the body of Christ. For encouragement, for help, for edification. If you're not a member of Cornerstone, why don't you just slip out of your seat right now. Pastor David's right here. Just come up next to him and say, David, we're ready. I'm ready. I need to be a member. I need to make a commitment to the team. And, and in this way, I'm going to make my stand with Christ. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed, let me challenge anyone who's here and has never received Jesus Christ as your Savior. Would you be willing right now to make the decision that Pilate flubbed? You've got your shot right now. Would you be willing to say, I'll receive him as my Savior. I'm not ashamed. I know who he is. He's the Son of God. If you're ready to receive Christ, then why don't you transfer your faith? You believe in your heart, the Bible says, with the mouth confession is made. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's call right now. Right now, not tomorrow, right now. Let's pray together. 
If you're ready, pray like this. Dear God, you see me bowing before you here in Fort Worth. God, I bow my head and my heart and I make my confession to you that I am a sinner. You know it. I know it. And I want to make that clear. I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. I know I can't save myself. I need intervention from the outside. And I know no one loves me like you love me. And I believe, Jesus, that you're the Son of God who came to this earth, lived a sinless life. I believe you were crucified for my sins. You paid my penalty. You were buried and you rose again with power to be my living Savior. That is my confession. And this morning I officially put my trust in you as Lord and Savior of my life. My eternity is in your hands. I'm trusting in you to save me and take me to heaven. Lord, I want to live for you a life worthy of your life pleasing to you so God fill me with your spirit now and help me to live for you as I turn my back on my old lifestyle to live a life for Christ now thank you for loving me and thank you for saving me in Jesus name